right. I am now uh, joined by uh, Kuba uh, Rinsky, who is, I think, one of the uh, sharpest and most interested foreign policy commentators on the left. You can see him regularly on the This Is Revolution podcast. Uh, how are you doing today, Kuba? Um, I'm doing all right. Uh, the It's it's a heavy time, obviously, um, especially yeah. for anyone with um, an Eastern European right. um, connection. But um, the it could always be much worse, I suppose, is um, what I'm getting at. And fortunately, so far, there hasn't been a great deal of urban um, fighting. And um, we'll see how situa- the situation develops, given that um, Russian forces are already engaged at the outskirts of uh, Kiev. Um, the Ukrainians report that uh, saboteurs and other forward elements of the Russian invasion force are active in the city. Uh, Hostomel airfield is um, allegedly under Russian control. It's unclear whether or not they'll be able to use it uh, to move in troops and heavy equipment that's located at the outskirts of Kiev as well. Okay. But the situation is um, developing very quickly. The um, Russian advance into Chernigov appears to have stalled. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's heavy fighting in Kharkiv. I can't um, get uh, concrete and detailed information on what's going on in the south, but the advance... Um, towards Kherson from Crimea appears to be proceeding. And there's uh, also been fighting in and around Odessa. A couple of civilian ships have been uh, hit by um, rockets and uh, bombs, probably Russian operations meant to prevent any materiel from arriving into Ukraine. And Moldova, Mm -hmm. Romania, and Poland have started receiving large numbers of refugees crossing into the border. It's good that those routes haven't been sealed for Ukrainian civilians trying to get away from the fighting. Um, and I, I just hope that this can all end as quickly as possible. The longer it goes, the heavier the toll will be for Ukrainian civilians, the more difficult post-conflict resolution will be uh, diplomatically and economically. Yeah. Um, so, so I do, you know, we do have a call and I do, uh, do want to get to Michael in just a moment, but uh, I, I do want to just follow up on the last thing that you said, because I am, I mean, I think that it's a place where a lot of people's heads aren't at right now for reasons that, you know, tend to happen when, when wars start. Uh, but I, I am curious about what you think a potential diplomatic resolution. Well, actually, let's split it up into two parts, right? Like, what it might have looked like if it, it had happened to like head this off, right? Stop it from happening in the first place, and like what it might look like now. So, it so much depends on how far you want to roll back. 
the clock. Uh, if we go all the way back to uh, 1989, then um, an independent Ukraine um, could have um, reached some sort of durable international uh, accord with Russia and potentially with the EU, mm -hmm. which would Finlandize it as mm -hmm. a permanently neutral, unaligned state mm -hmm. where uh, both Russia and the EU could uh, integrate economically and uh, Ukraine wouldn't militarize mm -hmm. and wouldn't lean to either side. And I think that especially given the example of Finland, that that would be a reasonable and potentially very productive uh, relationship for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like Finland gets to have, you know, Kia and the best educational system in the world. Right. Um, yeah, you could do a whole lot worse as a country than being Finland. Exactly. And if you move forward to 2014 and the uh, Maidan uprising, the change of government, from um, this messy democratic system, which generally produced um, unstable governments alternating pro-Russian, pro-Western, mm -hmm. to um, this conflict situation where Russia claims Crimea, later annexes it. Uh, you have the breakaway republics in the Donbass. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an agreement reached, the Minsk Accords, uh, which had a potentially viable path forward where uh, Ukraine would remain unaligned mm -hmm. um, and a federal structure would guarantee that um, the Russophone and Russian ethnic minorities yeah. could enjoy uh, autonomy um, it would introduce more um, veto points to prevent the alignment of Ukraine with either the West or with Russia. But um, neither side seriously lived up to their commitments within that framework. Mm -hmm. In uh, both Poroshenko and uh, later Zelensky, despite being signatories, uh, to that uh, diplomatic deal, mm -hmm. continued to try to deepen ties with the West and in their national defense planning, uh, integrated uh, things like the recapture of Crimea and the separatist republics, uh, elements that ran counter to spirit and the letter of the agreement, which essentially rendered it meaningless. Similarly, mm -hmm. Russia continued to support the separatists in um, the Donbass. Mm -hmm. And for a little while, it was Donetsk, don't tell, where they pretended mm -hmm. that um, it wasn't going to be, uh, this was an entirely Ukrainian affair and they were staying out of it. Mm -hmm. But um, that there's very strong evidence that uh, regular Russian forces would filter in and out of Donbass to guarantee that um, the 
separatist republics wouldn't collapse to uh, right. the Ukrainian military. So if the if both parties had committed to their obligations under the Minsk Accords, we wouldn't be here. Um, the and NATO also I've mentioned Ukraine and I've mentioned Russia, but NATO also was was active in encouraging uh, Ukraine to um, find a military solution to the uh, to its internal problems rather than um, live up to the agreements. So I think it was a situation where uh, there was still enough expectation of uh, international formal niceties so that the parties felt obliged to uh, persist with what was essentially a diplomatic charade, Mm -hmm. which neither intended to honor, which none of the parties intended to honor. And um, I think that one reason why um, we haven't seen an escalation like this sooner is that under the Donald Trump presidency, there was weakening and of uh, the transatlantic NATO connections. You had um, an unpredictable president who was willing to um, get closer to uh, traditional American rivals and uh, had no qualms making deals with um, autocratic governments. You know, its closest foreign supporters were Israel and Saudi Arabia. And Mm -hmm. with a president like Trump, Putin could, um, didn't have to worry that there was an effective NATO strategy that might strengthen Ukraine and also could hold out hope that in some kind of transactional deal, um, he might get a green light um, for, a, you know, a political solution which would place mm. Ukraine on the, the Russian side. Once Biden comes to power and the foreign policy establishment is sort of restored in their traditional role um, as um, sort of Atlanticist anti-Russian hawks, that's when the buildup commences because you no longer have a credible path for Russia to achieve its aims um, diplomatically. I mean, and that's putting aside entirely the question of um, Hunter Biden's connections mm-hmm. with Ukraine and all of the sort of uh, sleazy sub rosa stuff that may be going on. And uh, in terms of what a current, um, what type of resolution might bring the current conflict to an end, I think that the commitment of Russian troops means that anything short of a victory for Russia is a non-starter, which at the minimum means the removal of the current mm-hmm. uh, Ukrainian administration, uh, a pro-Russian or uh, at the very minimum, a committed, unaligned government in Kiev and uh, likely uh, some territorial adjustments 
mm-hmm. Donetsk and Lugansk probably to Russia, um, maybe some other areas as well. And that is going to be unacceptable to uh, NATO. Right. It's going to be unacceptable to the United States and to the European Union. Um, so I don't think that you get to an end diplomatically. What's more mm-hmm. likely to happen is that Russia succeeds militarily. Mm-hmm. And um, after a decent interval, uh-huh. because of the overwhelming uh, economic interest that Western Europe has in Russian energy and the uh, trade relationship all of the potential economic upsides that mm-hmm. go along with integrating uh, Russia. Mm-hmm. And you already see pushback against things like removing it from the SWIFT system um, and imposing the most biting types of sanctions, even from uh, American allies that have made all the proper announcements about uh, unprovoked aggression. Mm-hmm. After a decent interval, you have a conference which normalizes the um, the new Ukrainian government and uh, finds a way to wind down the the sanctions uh, against Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that can happen while Putin is still in power, unclear. Potentially, he's sixty nine right now. Uh, potentially. In five, seven years, there will be a transition to new leadership, and that might be a good opportunity to revisit the relationship between Russia and the West. Mm-hmm. And the most optimistic scenario is someone like Macron um, convenes a general uh, European Security uh, Council or um, something like the uh, Paris, um, Paris Congress of Paris that ended the uh, ended World War One, or the Congress of Vienna that established mm-hmm. a new security infrastructure for Europe, and Russia is integrated at that point in a broader continental uh, security system that uh, recognizes its interests, but also subsumes it within larger institutions. That may be too optimistic, but I think normalization or at least the the de-escalation of Mm -hmm. sanctions and hostilities are likely to happen once all is said and done and the world is just faced with a fait accompli that the Russians are not leaving um, Uh Ukraine, that the future for Ukraine um, will be pro-Russian governments for the uh, foreseeable future. Yeah. All right. Uh, So I have many follow-up questions, but let's get our caller in. So Michael. Yep. Yes. All right. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I have to admit that I think that a lot of people my age, what we know about Ukraine was um, on the uh, board of the Parker brothers game risk. So, Uh And I've funny, I see a weak. lot of that on social media, too. Everybody's, like, talking about the risk uh, game. Like, uh, where are the Ural Mountains? Where is Ukraine? 
But anyways, um, a, a friend of mine sent me an article this morning from the New, York, the New Yorker, and it was interesting that it seemed like Putin considers Ukraine, or he says that he does, the way that Israel considers Palestine, that they don't, they're not really there, they're not really people, they were created. I don't know if either of you saw that, and I, and I forget who the, the interview was with, but I, I did, is that a prevailing attitude in, in so, the Russian uh, government? Um, I, can, I can jump in on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, if you go back to right, like the Ugabuga period of Eastern European history, there's one massive Slavic super tribe that extends all the way from Germany to the Ural Mountains um, and all the way from the Baltic coast to the Black Sea. Then that begins to fragment into uh, smaller political units, you know, feudal chiefdoms, kingdoms, principalities, and uh, they take on local characteristics. A big moment is the conversion of the Slavic peoples to Christianity, which creates an Orthodox Catholic division. The languages, which is possibly the firmest base for nationhood in Europe of Ukrainian and Russian are very similar. Um, Polish is an order is one kind of notch further away, but Polish and Ukrainian are somewhat intelligible. Russian and Ukrainian are mutually intelligible. The uh, name Russia comes from the Kievan Rus, which was the first, um, the first real Slavic kingdom and created the cultural space that um, other Eastern um, Slavic, you know, future Russian peoples would uh, develop inside. So um, the idea that like there's a Ukrainian transhistorical um, national identity, it, just like any historical, a transhistorical national identity, it's constructed. Yeah, I mean, and, that's, that's kind of what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, like whenever I hear people say things like this, right? You know, that's like, oh, historically there never really is a nation of blah blah blah. I always think it's like when, like, you know, I don't know, like bitter, bitter single people say, you know, Valentine's Day is made up bullshit. It's like, okay, unlike all the other holidays that are found yeah. in nature, right? You know, it's right. like the, uh, it's like, well, I mean. You know, nationalism basically is a, you know, 18th century invention, you know, to, to simplify a little bit, right? You know, so it's like, and most national identities, you know, like really coalesce after that. So I, I, I don't always, I don't always understand what people even mean when they say things like this. The, I think that um, the sort of building blocks of national identity that do have a longer mm-hmm. lifespan than um, 18th century sort of romantic mm-hmm. popular sovereignty myths are language and religion because they allow people to participate in a collective experience. Mm-hmm. And with Ukrainians and Russians, you have a shared language, you have a shared um, religion. The existence of a separate Ukraine as a modern nation it's something that only goes back to 
um, you know, at best, and this is a big stretch to um, the interwar period when briefly, as the Russian Empire was falling apart, Ukrainian nationalists, anarchists, um, communists uh, recognized that you could um, mobilize people around a Ukrainian identity and created different uh, you know, national governments, national organizations that had the word Ukraine in it and that were operating on that territory. The, uh, that doesn't last. The Soviets win and establish uh, their dominance over that territory and create uh, Ukraine as a Russian, uh, as a socialist republic within the USSR. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think that at this point, you know, the, the best analogy is that uh, Ukraine is kind of like the New England of Russia you know, or the New England of the, the Russophone space, mm-hmm. that it has a distinctive local identity. It has some features that set it apart, but it also has... That's a great analogy, actually. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, the... Um, uh, you're well. I wish it was mine, but I heard it from Steve Fish <laughs> when I was at Berkeley. Um, and the so, you know, you can make an argument that right, like Massachusetts is older than the United States, therefore, New England, New Englanders <laughs> is like an ethnicity of its own. Or you can make the argument that uh, without the United States, Massachusetts wouldn't have any kind of like meaning, right? Like it's too closely tied up with the bigger American national project and national history so that they belong together. And essentially Don't tell Sam Feeder that, okay? I, I promise. Uh, my lips are sealed. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but um, but like, uh, that's, that's the argument essentially that Putin is making, that mm-hmm. Ukraine is only meaningful yeah. as, a, as a component of a greater Russian space. And uh, most Ukrainians... And that's really where the metal or the rubber right. hits the road, right? Like, what do Ukrainians think? Um, most Ukrainians, um, just like most people, when it comes to these big theoretical, historical questions, don't really care that much. They just want to get on with their lives. And the um, areas that were under the USSR before World War um, II, especially, there was so much mixing between Russian populations and, you know, Ukrainian populations, so much learning of Russian as a language, uh, an educational system that emphasized that connection um, and that presented the history of Russians and Ukrainians as being linked. They could go either way, right? Just like New Englanders, just like Texans, just like Californians sometimes feel a strong sense of affinity to their state and sometimes feel a strong national um, affinity. Uh, the, you have the situation where the majority of inhabitants of Ukraine are Ukrainian by self-reported ethnicity, but mm-hmm. Russophone by language. The exception is the Western region, which was in Poland before the Second World War. And there, um, the it's... Ukrainian by ethnicity, Ukrainian by language, deeply Russophobic, very suspicious of Russia. And 
that has to do with the experience of Ukrainians under the USSR, which, uh, you know, wasn't good. Um, there was the Holodomor, the death starvation, the death murder, the, the starvation murder, that's the translation, mm-hmm. of uh, millions of Ukrainians through the forced uh, forced uh, seizure of um, staple crops and even seed grain in order to pay for industrialization together with the incredibly destructive um, uh, World War II battles and occupations. The Ukrainian nationalists collaborated with uh, Hitler and there were SS units raised from uh, Ukrainian volunteers that fought against the Red Army and that committed anti-Semitic and uh, anti-Polish atrocities, tens of thousands at least of Poles and Jews killed by these units. In um, Western Ukraine, and this is where the Nazi accusation comes from, on the, from the uh, left mm-hmm. and from uh, pro, pro-Russian elements uh, especially, in Western Ukraine, those collaborationists, those Nazi collaborators, are treated like, um, say, the Mau Mau in Kenya or um, the IRA in um, Ireland. That these are, you know, they had to do some bad things. They had to get their hands dirty, but national liberation ain't beanbag. And these are the people who fought and, and died against um, a regime, the USSR, that sought to brutalize and extinguish uh, the Ukrainian nation. And just like Putin's argument, a big transhistorical uh, case for Slavic unity, uh, this one is a, it's, there's some there there historically, Mm -hmm. um, but it's only meaningful if people uh, activate it as the basis of political mobilization or as the foundation of, of sort of symbols and identities associated with being Ukrainian. And unfortunately, they did, which is why we have this problem of uh, many far-right elements being um, significant players on the Ukrainian side. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. That was a, a, a great answer, and it actually touched on my next question about... Um, you know, reading uh, the transcript of what Putin said the night of the invasion, which, from what I understand, it was filmed the previous night, but aired the next night. Um, that's what I heard today. But yeah, that predisposition to Nazism that he seems to think is there, and which I think is probably all over Eastern Europe or, or Europe in itself. And I think I think you, you address that as well. So I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I would just pile in on that. I know I've seen our friend Jean Bajalon point out that um, whereas there is, you know, some truth, not just as a historical matter, but in terms of um, like far right paramilitaries uh, fighting the Ukraine to the Nazi accusation. I mean, they're, you know, a germ of truth. I think that a lot of people really exaggerate. It is also true that like Russia has like been more than happy to collaborate with, you know, with, with, uh, with like very similar far right elements, you know, when they're on their side. 
Yeah, the and and I think Mike that you're um you're um you hit the nail on the head when you say that this is a general European problem. It's a general Western problem. I mean, you can even find correct um, third world, especially Nazis. here. Yeah, and it's 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 a problem. <laughs> the um the difference being that in Ukraine, they have a political party, they have militias, they have representation of the government. Um, and the appeal of kind of um, civil libertarian, multicultural, uh, democratic norms and ethics is much less historically rooted in Russia and Ukraine than it is in Western Europe or the United States. So that eth- that violent ethno-nationalism can circulate pretty broadly uh, without being challenged. That said, most Ukrainians aren't Nazis. Most Ukrainian nationalists probably aren't even Nazis. And... I mean, the, the president and prime minister of, of Ukraine are both Jewish, so that, that suggests the presence of at least a few non-Nazis in the country. Exactly. So um, the it's... Um, it's and similarly, Russia has its own, you know, whether national Bolsheviks or straight up white supremacists, um, it has its own far right problems. Um, even Navalny, who was treated as this, um, you know, great democratic hope because he was a, an effective opposition leader against Putin, he played into some uh, pretty ugly Russian ethno nationalism directed towards people from the Caucasus. And it's, um, which, you know, makes it kind of ironic that Putin is uh, pledging to denazify a country. Uh, He means he's going to get rid of the Nazis he doesn't like. Um, Which, you know, (laughs) I mean, like... That's what most people say when... (laughs) That's what most people mean when they say that, I think. Like, the United States... Precisely, precisely. Like um, Nazis, we don't like to Nuremberg. Nazis, we like to Argentina. <laughs> Argentina yeah. or Uruguay, yeah. Yeah, or uh, or, or to or Braun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, we should probably get some more calls to. Hey, we're gonna... thank you guys very much. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. I love what you do. All right, thank you thank so much, you. Michael. All right, um, let's get uh, Pepin. Um, who I interact with all the time on social media, but I just realized as I was saying that that I'm not 100% sure on that pronunciation. Uh, the pronunciation doesn't matter. Just call me Pep. Um, okay, Pep. So, all right. Uh, well, uh, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, I'm actually very invested in this problem because I have Ukrainian friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they fled Kiev. Uh, they're now going to the West and they're, they're asking me what U.S. intelligence is saying about when Kiev is going to fall. And it's all just very heartbreaking. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, but what I wanted to ask is um, I, I keep thinking back on Chomsky and on other imperial stuff. So Chomsky said two things about uh about the war in Iraq and stuff. He he said um, if the main export of Iraq was asparagus, the U.S. wouldn't be there. And he's also said about the CIA that uh, 
the U.S. meddling in the Middle East would increase the threat of terror mm-hmm. rather than solve it. And I bring this up because I think I'm thinking about uh, Putin's stated stuff about NATO expansion and about the security of Russia. And I'm thinking about Ukraine's immense mineral wealth. And I, I know it's not just about that, but we don't we don't know what's going on in his mind. We don't know what he's been talking about with his cabinet and his uh, oligarch buddies and how he has convinced them to also be on board with this. But I, I would like to ask Kuba just how how much of this is really about national security stuff and how much of this is, is about resources? So I would think of it this way. And I've been paying attention to... Um, Russian politics and, you know, since I was a child, because uh, as a Polish um, refugee from Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. the USSR and later Russia, uh, just an enormously important uh, political question uh, for me personally. And it, it later is one of the reasons why I pursued the studies that I did. And looking at Putin's record, and what came before Putin. You have the Yeltsin period where um, Russia really suffered a historical collapse, not just in terms of its power and prestige, but the rule of law, gone. Um, Criminal syndicates and oligarchs doing whatever they want. You had... um, an explosion of HIV AIDS, drug addiction, and just a a national sense of despair, demoralization, humiliation. To be Russian meant to be pathetic, to be a loser. And the government couldn't seem to do anything. Uh, When Chechen fighters uh, attempted to secede from Russia, uh, this vaunted Red Army, you know, post uh, post-communist, post-Red Army, I guess, um, was uh, fought to a standstill and couldn't manage the situation. When uh, And Putin is... Uh, one thing to realize is that he was never an oligarch. He started out as a K- KGB man and spent his entire career in government. Sergei Lavrov is a similar figure. He's uh, He's been a diplomat um, in the Soviet Union and throughout the post-Soviet um, history as well. And Eastern European perspectives on national life are much more state-centric than what Americans are used to. That there's a role for the state as a separate and distinct institution to protect, safeguard, make great the, um, the people. And Putin is somebody who, from the very beginning, rather than, like Yeltsin, um, basically taking the money and letting the oligarchs do what they want, he had a systematic program to eliminate um, oligarchs as centers of independent power. Some were killed, some were jailed, some were driven into exile. The 
only first generation oligarch that was allowed to sort of get a happy ending was Roman Abramovich, uh, because he worked so closely and collaboratively on Putin's projects to get rid of the others. And now he gets to run a soccer team in London. Uh-huh. Um, the, so you have this phase of internal state strengthening followed by military reforms, changes to um, the Russian system of government in order to entrench an autocratic, autonomous state authority over all of the lesser power centers in the country, whether it be the economic or regional or political. And then um, he began to assert Russia regionally. So I think that looking at his career, he would see himself as one of these restorer czars of the Russian empire, that he came in during a time of troubles and he's going to leave with Russia secured locally and internationally with um, the, you know, quote unquote reunification or how, however the uh, Russian um, state apparatus wants to, um, you know, whatever euphemism they want to use, the seizure of Ukrainian lands will be his legacy. So I think that that state orientation is much more um, important, much more central to his political project than staying in power in Moscow or accumulating even more billions of dollars of wealth. The Ukraine does have mineral wealth, and it also is an important transit route for Russian oil into um, Europe. Ironically, given that uh, the Germans killed Nord Stream 2, um, that threat, if he succeeds in taking Ukraine, becomes completely moot. Because once he has the Ukrainian pipelines, he doesn't need Nord Stream 2. Um, so on the economic front, I see that as additive to the state strengthening project that uh, Putin seems to be uh, directed towards, uh, rather than um, sort of the secret real reason with um, these security threats, these security considerations being a, an alibi for a resource grab. Um, and one, one reason that I am hesitant to kind of make a blanket, you know, this is aggression, this is megalomania, this is great power imperialism, um, case for the Putin project is that when he's had the opportunity to move into territory that um, wasn't essential or that was going to be very difficult to take, very difficult to control, um, he um, decided against it. In the Georgian War in 2008, he limited uh, the Russian advance to South Ossetia and Abkhazia. He didn't go for Tbilisi. He could have taken Tbilisi. He didn't. Uh, Similarly, he's never formally annexed or integrated Belarus as a component of um, the Russian Federation. He's fine with indirect rule. He's even fine with 
um, neighbors or countries in the Russian periphery having elections and um, deciding political matters locally, so long as when the diktat from Moscow comes, they find a way to make it happen. And the problem with Ukraine was that they broke that, um, they, they refused to abide by that unwritten rule. You know, the, after 2014, and even before that, um, with the Orange Revolution, you started to have governments in Kiev which would defy Russian interests uh, in favor of Western ones. And that was what was unacceptable. On yeah, even uh, Yanukovych sort of went in that direction, at least explored it. Yes, and I, I think that um, I think that one player that I haven't talk, uh, spoken much about is the EU, and I think that the EU actually deserves a considerable amount of blame for the situation that we're in, because um, in 2014, when um, Yanukovych was under pressure to sign the Eurasian Union deal with Belarus and Russia, which would essentially entrench Ukraine as a part of the Russian sphere of influence. Um, he probably trying to get a better deal, um, also opened negotiations with the European Union. And the European Union realistically wasn't going to admit Ukraine. Too large, too poor, too far, too different. Um, the agricultural subsidies that they'd be entitled to would, would just be too big a figure for yeah. the bean counters in like Copenhagen, Luxembourg, and Brussels. But they gave a provisional okay to opening accession talks, which blindsided Yanukovych. He was expecting that, you know, the best that he'd do is get a better offer from Putin, which he would have to take anyway. And the European um, conference would remain inconclusive. But Ukrainians, many Eastern Europeans, you know, from Poland to Moldova to the Balts, the holy grail for um, social economic progress has been EU membership. Yep. And when Yanukovych looked like he was taking away the European dream, just as it was in reach, that's what mobilized enough mass discontent so that together with uh, the nationalist elements that were anti-Russian on ideological grounds, you could topple the government. And the unwillingness to make good on that deal, the unwillingness to uh, the irresponsibility of raising Ukrainian expectations and hopes to the point where they reorient their entire domestic politics. Um, and then, you know, best I can do is NATO membership is incredibly callous and irresponsible. So I think that that's, um, that's one area where European statecraft really, really fell flat, um, especially the bait and switch aspect. But after the fact, you um, you make NATO membership the the promise, 
nobody really cares about NATO membership. You know, ask the Albanians how much good it's done them. But yeah. um, the EU membership, that was something worth fighting for. And they, Ukrainians fought for it. And now it's um, further away than ever. Yeah, but if if we go back to um, to this this uh, motivation of, of Putin and the people around him, um, just like the war on terror predictably increased the threat of terror, it seems like uh, this invasion makes Russia less safe. I mean, now Finland and Sweden are interested in NATO and. Uh, there's NATO suddenly has a reason to live again because, you know, there's now a giant Russian threat. So there's going to be increased defense budgets and there's going to be more warmongering. And this is all extremely predictable. So yes. I, I, I just don't understand. I mean, Putin is extremely intelligent, so he must have known this was coming. So I just don't see... I mean, Pep, both Pep and Kuba, right? I am curious about this. Um, do you think that Putin thought that it was going to come to this? Or is it more that he he thought that he was going to get significant concessions by doing brinksmanship and that it didn't work and so he shot the hostage? I think he, I think he knew what he was doing. Okay. Um, I think that... and. One um, one important uh, context here is that after 2014, um, the there was never a new relationship, uh, a new stable um, stable state between Russia and Ukraine. Um, Russia takes Crimea because, uh, not least of all. There's a, uh, that's the headquarters, that's the base of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Baltic mm-hmm. Seaport. And um, the Black Sea Fleet is necessary to defend the southern Russian periphery against uh, foreign aggression. That's where the Turkish and Ottoman threat came from, um, you know, back in the imperial days. But it, also, with Turkey and NATO ally, if you lose control, if you lose your ability to influence the Black Sea, then you have uh, American, British, you name it, spy ships, warships right off your coast. So Crimea was um, a significant um, strategic objective, and that couldn't be something that um, was on the bargaining table uh, with uh, post-Maidan Ukraine, um, especially if Russia were, was in a position of weakness and the port was surrounded by uh, Ukrainian and NATO forces. So he moves expeditiously in 2014 with uh, the Donbass as well. And since then, the war has never really been over. There's yeah. always been fighting in the Donbass uh, and there's never been an actual durable peace. The perception in Russia, um, I expect, was that time was not in Russia's favor. The longer that a uh, pro-Western government is in Kiev, the more weapons are deployed to Ukrainian forces, the more training Ukrainian forces receive, the closer and closer 
Ukraine comes to membership or um, another kind of security guarantee from NATO. So the time um, had to come to bring this to a conclusion. You couldn't just postpone it forever. And while I think that Zelensky, if he had just immediately climbed down and went groveling back to the Minsk Accords, may have been able to forestall um, the invasion. But that's what it would have taken, like a kind of political self-immolation. And short of that, Putin was serious. Generally speaking, um, Russian and Soviet um, leaders don't threaten unless they intend to back it up. And Mm -hmm. when I heard the demands made that um, Ukraine be barred from NATO membership forever and that the Balts get kicked out of NATO, Mm -hmm. I expected war to come because you can't make those kinds of demands and allow them to be flaunted, disregarded, and thrown back in your face without killing all of your um, credibility as an international uh, participant. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's what I'm, I'm you know, curious about because my, um, you know, I guess my instinct would be that, you know, in the same way that, I mean, whatever, like, you know, union negotiations have ever been very peripherally involved in um, as uh, as an adjunct and all that is that, okay, clearly, like, clearly when they, like, made demands, like, kick the Baltic states out of NATO, like, sure. So they must have, like, like Putin must have known there was, like, a 0.00% chance that that was ever going to happen. Um, but, but I am, you know, I guess you did sort of answer this, but I am just very curious about, like, if you're, you know, if your sense is that if there had been, um, you know, like if, you know, what sort of negotiated settlement might have been possible, like if, if that had, um, you know, like, I mean, say, obviously, like nobody was getting kicked out of NATO, that's ridiculous. But if they, um, if they would had like the sort of negotiations where, you know, Ukraine's future status within, you know, as, as far as like possibly applying for NATO membership someday was the sort of thing that was put on the table, whether that was something that, you know, that could have prevented this, you know, from escalating. So I have a weird, uh, I realized that um, people might take this the wrong way, but mm-hmm. um, I think if, uh, this is the second time I'm going to reference them, um, but I think if Macron had been able to convene a an actual no bullshit, let's have, let's recreate the security architecture of Europe. I've got the Americans on board. They're willing to talk. You're an equal partner. We're going to come up with a formula where your security concerns are addressed. You're a participant in future security decisions. And we can settle Crimea. We can settle um, the future status of Ukraine. Uh-huh. I think that that might have done it. Um, but it didn't happen. Right? And the... Um, and I think that that's what it's going to take. Something like a grand reorientation with Russia as a full participant. 
in order to create a durable security architecture for Europe, which isn't two armed camps facing off against each other um, right. along a, a heavily entrenched and fortified border. Gotcha. Uh, Pep, to give a to give another question. Um, yeah, I might have, but I also don't want to take up too much time. Um, so maybe we should throw in the question, them. and then we'll move on to the next right. caller, and maybe we can answer them together. Um, I understand the historical anxiety in Russia about you know your uh, invasions from Europe, but I still find, and I'm. I've been watching the Americans and their imperialism and their horrible crimes for a long time, but I I really cannot envision any sort of uh, Western invasion into Russia. Like I can't see the scenario where that is actually something reasonable and, and probable, credible. But we all assume that this is the the prime motivation behind you know, this sort of offensive-defensive maneuvering of Putin. And it, it, is this actually something that's alive in, in, the, in the, the, the Russian mindset? Like, when's the next European invader going to come and we have to take measures and it's paramount importance, even if we have to, you know, start an enormously risky war? Uh, right. So- so, Let's so go that on goes, to the next caller. And, yeah, so and, that goes along with the asparagus yeah. question. So uh, that is a great question, but yeah, let's let's combine this with the next caller. Um, Good afternoon, Ben. Are you able to hear me? I am. Great. Well, I want to begin by congratulating you on your recent appearance on Joe Rogan's program. I was able to watch a little bit of it. I think it was probably last night that I was watching it as I was going to sleep. So I really enjoyed hearing you uh, speak with each other and. Um, I think you did a great job using the platform that he afforded you, and you got some really great messages out uh, about left-wing politics. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, have to uh, have to say, I, I really resent Vladimir Putin fucking up the uh, the rollout of that episode, you know, by uh, distracting people. But uh, but but I do appreciate that very much. Absolutely, you're very welcome. And so, one thing I want to talk about, if it's all right, with the connection to Vladimir Putin, is with this invasion that Putin has launched into Ukraine. I don't know exactly how many soldiers he's using, tens of thousands, I take it. I think there's an important historical parallel that I want to draw attention to. And I'd really like to hear your insights on it, if you think it's accurate, if you think it's insightful, or anything of that nature. And it's that I very much think that what Vladimir Putin has demonstrated, of course there are going to be intricacies and some differences. I don't deny that at all. But I think that what his invasion in Ukraine very much parallels at least in some prominent ways, what we saw from Saddam Hussein in starting the Iran-Iraq war. Now, what do I mean by that? Mm. Well, I think to begin with, saw that a lot of pressure from the Islamic Republic to goad Saddam Hussein into this war, just like there was from NATO and the U.S. and so on, goading Putin into making such a move. Now, their calculations in this case for Vladimir Putin was that Putin wouldn't make this charge. At least that's what it seemed like. And, you know, by things of goading, I mean that, like, selling those billions of dollars of weapons the Trump administration did to the right-wing Nazis in Ukraine, Azov Battalion, and so on, whereas Obama didn't. Similarly, in the comparison I'm making to the Islamic Republic and Iraq, is the fact that there was an article, for instance, published in Foreign Policy called Who Started the War by Nida M. Renfrew, in 1987. 
that says, quote, the, um, there was uh, Khomeini in calling for the liberation of the Iraqis from, Hussein, from the Hussein government was able to obscure the real reasons for calling Hussein's overthrow by making it look as if a great Muslim cleric was, were retaliating against an infidel leader who had expelled him for the Shiite holy cities in Iraq. And in fact, a profound ideological schism explains the tense relations between the two countries. Iran's creed is the Islamic revolution. Iraq's is secular Arab nationalism, end quote. And then another thing is Telegram, like congratulating Khomeini. It says in that article, quote, when the Iraqi government sent a telegram congratulating Khomeini, the Ayatollah responded in public with an insult reserved by Muslims for infidels, end quote. That's on page 412 there. And so I think that we see a lot of parallels here in the sense that Saddam Hussein was a murderous um, you know, tyrant who uh, killed anywhere from 50,000 to 180,000 Kurds in the Anfal campaign of the late 1980s. That's obvious. The U.S. backed him during that time as well in the 80s. And so the thing is, uh, as you mentioned in the previous time we spoke, Vladimir Putin was supposed to be someone who potentially could have been like a Boris Yeltsin type figure, like listening to the U.S. and whatnot. But he had his own way of going straight, just like Ayatollah Khomeini did. And I can justify that as well. But obviously that will take a lot more time. However, I want to bring this uh, up for us because I think that we see here a very clear example of goading someone who won't back down from a war because of their militant nationalism and lack of fear for civilian lives. Of course, Putin had many other alternatives and avenues he could have used, such as like threatening Europe with a pipeline. He could have done what he did with during the Syrian civil war and uh, wrote like an op-ed or articles for people of U.S. to read. He could have come here to the U.S. and done like a tour speaking around like we don't want a war. Um, we don't want people in the Donbass being killed, all of that. But obviously, that's not the type of calculation he made because he doesn't mind civilians being slaughtered by his forces. I'd love to hear your reflections, man. So let me um, let me try to combine the two questions. And the um, when it comes to the types of threat that um, Russia feels from the West, it's not limited to conventional. Um, you know, World War II style Operation Barbarossa uh, were driving to Moscow. The color revolutions uh, in Georgia, in Ukraine, on other parts of the Russian periphery were also treated as an existential threat to um, Russian security and not just Russian security. I mean, other uh, countries, other rivals of the United States began to wind up NGOs and American-associated civil society institutions uh, following those developments. And that, that's what really made kind of George Soros a bogeyman of the right, because it was seen as a sort of domestic hybrid war where you use ideological positioning and um, you weaponize domestic discontents for a uh, type of regime change without bombs. And that's um, another type of threat that Putin um, has recognized coming from uh, the West. The uh, Ukraine being so close to Russia would uh, also, if you think about it 
as a pro, not as a sort of happy neutralized Finland, but as a pro-Western uh, headquarters, that could be a very dangerous nest of spies, um, a platform for cyber attacks, for infiltration, for um, contacts with the domestic anti-Putin opposition in Russia. So I think that for a lot of security reasons, um, this pro-Western Ukrainian government had to go. And the, um, the fear of external threats to security, uh, especially with a leader like uh, Vladimir Putin and Saddam Hussein is in some ways falls into this category too, where they've ruled for a long time. They expect to continue ruling for a long time. They have long um, historical horizons to look at. And they see themselves as, you know, a czar or a sultan or another type of, you know, autocratic, uh, great national historical figure. Uh, the anxiety isn't necessarily that this is going to happen next year or that this is going to happen when, um, when he's around. But what happens if Ukraine is a NATO member or a pro-NATO um, Western ally, and you, Putin dies unexpectedly, and you have another Yeltsin period. That's when the security threat might move from, um, you know, being unimaginable. It's unimaginable to think of American troops on Russian soil to, oh my God, American peacekeepers have just landed in uh, St. Petersburg because of the domestic turbulence in Russia. And the um, when it, you're describing this goading, uh, that um, I think that like what I was saying with the EU being irresponsible in offering, uh, holding out the prospect of EU membership while um, not really being willing to follow through and not addressing the consequences of what such a move uh, might provoke. I think that... Um, there are a lot of, and I know this from my time in Washington, uh, I heard from the sort of neocon think tank people and, and various other security analyst uh, types that Russia was a paper tiger. We just need to bomb one of their air bases. They're going to back down. He'll get the message that there was a lot of this uh, belief that if we just provoke enough, then we can get what we want um, in a relatively cheap way through, uh, through force. And that group is a minority within the foreign policy establishment, but they're not trivial. Remember, it's people like this that came up with the um, entire plan for the Iraq war. And there's a when they talk about the Ukrainian war now that, that it's underway, these same people tend to have a fantasy that, oh, we're really going to bleed Putin. Oh, it's going to be an insurgency. It's going to be great. It's going, uh, they're going to, the Ukrainians are going to be the new Mujahideen um, with a complete disregard for the lives that this would cost and the devastation that it would inflict on Russia and Ukraine alike. But instead a focus on 
the security advantages that America might enjoy with um, a weakened, mauled, and humiliated Russia. Similarly, the uh, when you discuss the Iran-Iraq War, from the perspective of the United States, it was a pure win because you have uh, what they call mutual balancing, that uh, both Iran and Iraq are potential regional threats to American interests. And as long as they're fighting each other, you don't have to worry about them coming up with a plan to uh, individually to um, topple your puppets or reorient the region um, away from your favorite outcomes. I think that there are Russophones in Washington, uh, Russophobes in Washington that like the idea of Putin being, you know, finally mask off as an evil, destructive dictator, and that this will allow you to put him in a box with sanctions. This will allow you to to, to sort of crush the Russian threat. But um, more than criminal or more than morally odious, because basically all international security affairs are morally odious. Most of them are criminal too. Um, I think that this is a, a malpractice of international policy. Uh, I don't think it'll work out the way that they want. They're not going to get the outcome that they desire and their moves um, will be both ineffective and extraordinarily costly in human lives if um, decision makers listen to them. But, you know, they like, uh, just like you say that uh, Putin has no aversion to civilian casualties. And I think that in the case of um, th the kind of fighting we're seeing in Ukraine, they're not indiscriminately bombing cities. They're um, avoiding certain uh, infrastructure that is important to civilians. Um, when the Germans invaded Poland, um, Stuka dive bombers would recreationally shoot at columns of fleeing refugees. We are not seeing that in Russia. I think that there's a certain restraint um, of the Russian armed forces in um, their tactics that they use because they don't want a heavy civilian death toll and a record of atrocities to get in the way of the political settlement they want to impose after the fact. Um, but yeah, the, the many of the worst decisions um, for international peace are made by those kinds of um, people that advocate policy, thinking that you can trade human lives for some kind of strategic advantage. And typically you end up with, uh, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dead and an even more brittle security situation. Oh, yeah. Um, let's just do, so, so Cuba, how much, how much time do you have left? Um, I let's do another 10, 15 minutes. Okay, cool. Uh, well, Kusha, you have a quick follow up before we go to the last caller. Sure, uh, just a very quick one. I want to uh, I want to thank Cuba uh, very much for his answer. I think it was very thoughtful, very expansive, and very extensive. And I know he fleshed it out at great length for us just now. So I want to thank him for that. And um, Ben, if you have any thoughts on it, I would really like to hear uh, if you have any reflections on like the analogy I drew. I think 
Kuba mm-hmm. does a very good job of creating some qualifications. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that was to be expected. I know this analogy, like many analogies, is not going to be perfect mm-hmm. um, uh, in its um, comparison. But I think that what it really shows here is that foremost, these enemy mm-hmm. governments of the United States, which I've been seeing you do a lot on your Twitter and you've been emphasizing it more, it's the whole walk and chew gum thing that you've been saying to me a lot, is that that's what needs to be done in making, as we just saw from Cuba, making a Mm -hmm. thorough analysis, not just a very simplistic, you know, truncated view, good guy, bad guy, and the story, this one, and just go all in on one side or the other, but rather understanding that what the motivations are for someone like a Vladimir Putin or a Bashar Mm -hmm. al-Assad or a Khamenei Khomeini type. Because as we, anyone, when we're trying to build a sense of trust and authenticity and sincerity in showing that, yes, these are the facts, and I'm not going to just hide inconvenient facts and truth from you, no matter if it's my government, or rather the government I live under doing it, or an enemy government of mine. I'd really love to hear your thoughts, Ben. Yeah, I, well, first of all, yes to all of that. I, I think... Um... It's it's been a very I mean it's been a really frustrating thing because I think that a lot of people who I interact with and you know online left wing you know or podcasty kinds of political spaces uh, are have been trained to just kind of react to things and when I say trained I don't mean like somebody brainwashed them I, I just mean like the sort of that's like the shape, the lay of the land, right? I mean, that's what people do. If you spend a lot of time in these spaces, you know, you, you end up, you know, kind of getting acclimated to, to doing that. And so, um, so people end up really emphasizing maybe something that's true about the situation, but, um, and then just kind of getting mad at anything else, you know, because they think it detracts from what they want to emphasize. So um, I, I tend like, so I do see, and I will say, to be fair, I think there are very few of these people, right? Like there are, like it can feel like a lot on Twitter sometimes, but like even the even the number of like accounts that post stuff like this, it's like tiny in the greater scheme of things. But there are like a few online leftist weirdos who have somehow decided that like Vladimir Putin is the reincarnation of, you know, Vladimir Lenin, uh, all evidence to the contrary, right? You know, uh, even though uh, he's you know, presiding over uh, a, you know, this like right wing, you know, militaristic gangster capitalist oligarchy. Uh, but, and who I think have a related view, you know, which I was, I was talking about with Gene when he was on a couple weeks ago that um, American imperialism is like the, the only imperialism that could exist. And so people like this will say things like, uh, Oh, actually, this is like a hundred percent the fault of of uh, of the West, or you know, it's the uh, the Russians are just fighting neo Nazis, and and I think I think all that's just kind of dumb, right? That they that uh, obviously it 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 flattens the situation and like and it ignores massive parts of the picture in ways that Cuba has been talking about factually, and and I also think it's it's just. Uh, it's just like utterly out of step with like any kind of acceptable socialist values, right? Like a true thing that people will often say is that if there was a, you know, like some sort of 
I don't know, like China started their own little version of the Warsaw Pact or something, and that that was like sort of spreading through Latin America. And there was a real danger that Mexico would join it, that the United States might invade Mexico. And I, I think the United States may, might very well might invade Mexico under those circumstances, but of course I would strenuously oppose that war. And similarly, I, I feel nothing but sympathy and solidarity for, for Russians who are getting arrested for protesting the war in Moscow right now. Uh, so I think that's a very marginal thing, but an incredibly stupid thing. And then I think the thing that's unfortunately much more common and I think more dangerous because people are adding their voices to a chorus that includes like a vast number of people who actually have some you know influence in the real world is the view that roughly says that if you think that um, the United States should have done like what Bernie Sanders advocated in his Guardian op-ed and tried harder to you know achieve a negotiated settlement to head this off. Uh, or if you think that there are any true sentences you can say about the rights and wrongs of anything that's happened in the Ukraine since 2014 that have the word but in them, then you're a Putin apologist. Like, I, I, I see a lot more of that second one, and, and I think that that's, I think that's really bad, right? I think that, uh, I think that you know, we, can, we can recognize that it's true that, of course, the sort of primary uh, bad actor here is is the Russian government. You know that that they're the ones you know engaged in the sort of you know regional um, uh, you know bullying and and have you know which is to be expected. But then like made this shocking move of uh, of actually doing a full scale invasion, or at least shocking to me, and I think shocking to probably most people. Uh, most um, you know not everybody, of course, but I mean I think most observers. Um, you know, weren't expecting it uh, because it's it's kind of irrational in uh, in ways that were talked about you know before, but uh, but it's it's still it's still the case that I, I mean I don't know I mean maybe this is too simplistic maybe Cuba can you know weigh in on this before we take the last caller but it still seems to me that when I think about the range of terrible things that could happen here and there are many many you know I mean it's already a terrible situation and there are many more terrible things that could happen like the most terrible thing that would be imaginable would be the United States or other Western powers like actually getting sucked into um, to the conflict uh, because, you know, I mean, this is, there, there is a reason why people have been very concerned for, for many decades now to, to avoid any, the, the possibility of a military confrontation, you know, between the, uh, the United States and Russia. And whereas right now that looks very slim, I mean, we're talking about economic sanctions and probably the most severe ones, you know, and there's, as Cuba talked about earlier, you know, there's there's even a lot of internal debate within, you know, kind of the, the American-led camp about how severe those sanctions should be. But I also think it's not a trivial or, or just sort of a fantasy thing. I mean, there, there are, um, you know, there are some, um, you know, there are plenty of people who are calling for that. I don't know if, if either either you or Cuba has, has anything that you want to say about that before we moved on. Yeah, the um I I have very little anxiety. I agree that the worst possible thing that could happen would be uh intervention by a, a NATO power which would broaden the conflict. Yeah. I I think that the likelihood of that is very low mm-hmm. because all of the interests of uh, NATO powers are um, aligned against that type of escalation. 
Um, there are, you know, I, I know libertarian, uh, not libertarian, neocon psychos in uh, Washington, D.C. that would advocate, that would push for that. But um, I don't think that they will be able to uh, drive policy in this case. And the, um, and the United States doesn't have a great foreign policy team, and it doesn't have um, a strong policy uh, blueprint or vision for what should go on in Ukraine. But um, they are focused primarily on the midterms, on American domestic politics, and yeah. they, they're not going to take all the oxygen and try to put it in um, justifying and executing um, that type of intervention, especially since, practically speaking, there aren't the forces in the region to make that great a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you wanted to move them into the region, if you needed to, well, you would have had to start years ago, okay. um, certainly months ago. And Turkey, um, possibly Italy, possibly Greece, um, key NATO allies that control some of the infrastructure that um, that logistics effort would require are just not going to agree to it because the risks to them are too great. The upside to them is too low. And um, without um, you know being able to, for American warships to access uh, the Black Sea through the Strait of Bosphorus, without yeah. land connections from American bases in Italy um, or through Greece, it would just take too long to uh, deploy the type of force that would be necessary to, to make a dent. And you could throw F-35s or um, smaller naval craft at the Russians, but then all that would happen is both sides would suffer losses and now you've got a bigger war. So I think that that outcome is is not that likely, but it's definitely something that we should push against. And um, from a humanitarian perspective, I just want this to be over as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, that, that really seems like the, I mean, bottom line, I mean, this this is such a catastrophic outcome and anything, you know, I mean, yeah, prolonging it, uh, you know, like could could be, you know, horrific. And I, I just, I mean, I think that obviously, you know, there's there's no, uh, I mean, I think you laid out a, a sort of grimly good case earlier. You know, that there's there's probably no very good, uh, you know, outcome of this anytime soon. You know, from a uh, from Ukrainian, uh, you know, perspective. But I, I just, um. You know, I, I think having this kind of fighting going on on this kind of scale is so incredibly dangerous and that, um, I mean, anything that, that could be, you know, like like what I guess this is a, this is a way to put what I was saying earlier that might be clear that I guess I just get disturbed by the number of reactions that I see from people who um, kind of want to make everything a morality play that's like um 
it's always 1938 and it's always Munich and like, you know, and, and like the worst thing that you can do is appeasement. And, and that just seems incredibly unhelpful to me that, you know, that, that, that it seems like the, um, you know, the thing that you want, uh, I mean, sure, you know, 1938, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a different situation because, uh, you know, the, the, you know, Nazi Germany, you know, uh, making a, a bid for, you know, for world domination is, is obviously, uh, a, uh, you know, an unusual situation, but I mean, I, I think in the, I think in the normal circumstance, you know, the overwhelming priority should be, you know, stopping wars or, you know, from happening ideally or, or, uh, or, and, you know, or stopping them from, you know, from, from dragging out or, you know, resolving them as quickly as at all possible. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree completely. And um, the 1938 Munich analogy, it's, what so many people reach to uh, reach for all the time that I find it less alarming because uh, it's only meaningful when you have um, powerful enough bureaucratic actors in the security apparatus that want to make it happen. Um, If otherwise it's it's a bunch of people letting off steam the same way that um, you had the pussy hat protesters um, yeah. after the Trump election. Um, the these types of conflicts raise a lot of emotions. People want to say something. They want to they want to do something, and I see it more as, as blowing off some steam and and reassuring yourself that you're a, a good wise person. Uh, I don't think that. Um, it'll have much of an impact unless it can reach someone who um, who can give the go order. Yeah, and I don't think that's going to happen. Okay, well that is actually a very helpful analogy. Uh, Jeff, are you uh, are you with us? Gentlemen, hey, hey, hello. Enchanté de faire votre connaissance. Oh, un autre Canadien. Québécois. Québécois. Uh, on a des questions sur le, le, le code de, la, de la, la question de si on est Canadien. Uh, anyway, <laughs> gentlemen, um, Cuba, Cuba, you were saying that you only had 10 to 15 minutes, and by my clock, that time is up now. So you, if you have to duck out, we all have lives we have to pay for, and this doesn't pay. No, um, I'm... I would never turn down a question from a Canadian. Québécois, mon Québécois, mon Okay. Um, I'd like to start off first by quoting Elizabeth May because I kind of dissed her on the uh, TK Live with uh, with Matt Taibbi and Ryan Grimm. Um, and uh, her quote that is apropos of this particular uh, discussion is that we are in violent agreement. You know, when people try to add something to a conversation and they think that's negating their point, you know, when you add something. No, 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 Elizabeth would say, we're in violent agreement. I always like that expression. As long as the violence doesn't spill over and affect neighboring countries. (laughs) Well, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Let me give you a very short emphasis on very short bio. Uh, First off, are you ready? Do you guys need a laugh? 
What's up? I can do what, with one. What do you got? Okay, well, Hassan Piker's been pissing me off recently because he shifted my category. Once upon a time, not too long ago, I was old as fuck. And and Hassan Piker at age 30 is calling himself old as fuck. So that makes me older than fuck. So that pisses me off. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I hate it when young, handsome guys succeed. Yeah, they start calling themselves OAF. You know, that's not mm-hmm. fair. We're OAF. So yeah, I was born. Our word. I was, that's right. I was born in 1960 dans la belle province de Québec. And I've been writing for Counterpunch and Countercurrents and Dissident Voice and Information Clearing House and uh, Post Carbon Toronto for a very long time. I helped found Post Carbon Toronto in 2003. So I was looking to do a little more 30,000 foot view of this particular, you know, uh, well, crime against, against humanity, basically. Um, are you guys like, let's dispense with the legal aspect of this and, and what Caleb Mopé has been saying and, and whatnot. Are you guys familiar with the the legal doctrine that says the last person who has a chance to avoid something is and doesn't do so is in fact one of the most culpable for whatever happens? That that yeah. sounds familiar. My sister's a lawyer. Um... <laughs> yeah, so you know Vladimir Putin had the last chance to right, avoid right. this and did not do so. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's clearly right. I mean, this is, um, I mean, I think the situation obviously looked different, you know, a few days ago, but, um, but then, you know, but then Putin uh, launched a uh, launched a full scale invasion of of Ukraine. I mean, like, and it, I guess it goes back to some of what we were talking about with the previous caller, which is basically, you know, like when it was. Um, it was still a matter of um, of like a standoff and there was like the possibility of diplomacy and all that, you know, then I think uh, my, um, you know, I mean, my, my, my priority, you know, was, was that I wanted my government to, to do more of that, right. To, to stop this from, from happening. And, and I generally think that, you know, I mean, I tend to agree with Chomsky's point about how, um, you know, it, it's, you know, like even if it weren't the case that the United States uh, were uh, the uh, the by far the dominant you know imperial hegemon in the world, you know that the that the sort of what our government does should be of most you know what's like of most urgent concern to us. But you know at this point, um, then then you know Putin in, invaded, and I mean obviously um, as we were just talking about, I mean if if there did start to look like there was any possibility of the United States you know, or any other NATO powers going to get involved, then like, I mean, opposing that would be the most urgent, but since that hasn't happened, I mean, I, I don't know what there really is to, um, you know, like in terms of a, a sort of left reaction. I mean, all I can really say is, 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 is that this is a obscene crime and, and, and my sympathy is very much with Russian anti-war protesters. Now, in terms of Noam Chomsky, um, He's been my unofficial rabbi since 1978 when I was at biz school at Dalhousie. And uh, somebody mentioned to me that I should read his politics because I was very interested in a cognitive science article that uh, the psychology 101 teacher had us read. And uh, so I read his politics and I left the biz school for philosophy because I realized that we were running a death machine. So, you know, um, I actually got to meet with Noam uh, in his office at MIT in 2008 because I had just given a deputation on Parliament Hill. 
the only deputation in the history of Canada that was looking at the question, so what do we do after fossil fuels anyway? You know, I was a, a co-founder of Post Carbon Toronto in 2003. And in 2008, I was asked to do a deputation on Parliament Hill on, you know, essentially, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing to be funny. Uh, you know, what are we going to do after fossil fuels anyway? And um, so, you know, I am a lifelong follower of Noam Chomsky, and I'm also a lifelong follower of the Limits to Growth thesis. And, and that has guided my path in the way Cuba, your path has been guided. My path has been guided by, you know, the idea that the Limits to Growth is you know, as a thesis is undeniable. I mean, fossil fuels are finite. This is not rocket science. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, all right. So uh, I think we probably should uh, should wrap this up uh, since um, Kuba has been extraordinarily uh, generous with his time. Uh, but well, Ben, you and I could continue chatting if you like. Okay. Well, uh, maybe just for a minute, but I, I, I should actually also go pretty soon. I have a commitment at seven, but, um, uh, but Kuba, do you, do you have any other, uh, do you have any other thoughts, uh, to, uh, to share with, uh, with listeners, uh, before we end this? The, I, I might be repeating myself from the previous call, but for me in terms of the bigger picture uh, there's nothing that really can be done to stop the uh, Russian offensive right now. And the what's open is what happens after uh, at the end of it. And one move that I think will be very telling about Russian uh, strategic goals overall is whether or not they enter uh, Western Ukraine. That's the area where uh, you don't have a uh, enough of a connection with Russia proper to make the population reconcilable to this forced reintegration into the Russian space. I think that um, as long as human losses can be kept to a minimum, the... Ukrainians in the center and in the south and places like Odessa and places like Kharkov will eventually forgive um, the invasion as long as their uh, lives can return to normal and that there's hope for a, a better future. But in Western Ukraine, the occupation, uh, any sustained Russian presence will inevitably trigger uh, a national resistance. And it'll be like the UK and Ireland instead of the UK and Scotland or Wales. Um, yeah. And that territory isn't particularly valuable for strategic or economic purposes either. Um, so if Putin is willing to engage in what will inevitably be um, a very serious repression, a very, very costly occupation on territory that isn't valuable and that um, isn't essential, then I would be worried that he'll push into other areas just for some strategic depth, that he's willing to subjugate a 
few million people just for the sake of moving the front lines another few hundred miles away. If that section of Ukraine is treated with um, some circumspection and either offered a very high degree of autonomy in a pro-Russian Ukrainian federation or uh, allowed to uh, secede mm. and become its own uh, independent state, whether aligned with the West or whether neutralized, yeah. then I think that that would be a signal that Russia could send that its uh, war aims are limited and that um, it could um, more readily, uh, you know, that might hasten that uh, decent interval that I was talking about before sanctions could potentially be relaxed or some new security arrangement formalized. So um, look at Lviv, look at uh, that Galician region, and I think that's kind of the canary on the, in the coal mine in terms of how things look post-war and what future Russian moves are uh, plausible. Thank you well, so much for having me, Ben. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. This with you and your listeners. Yeah, thank you so much, Kuba. This is incredibly informative uh, and and helpful. Uh, really good talking to you about this, uh, Jeff. Uh, do you do you say uh, where you actually uh, are in Canada? Uh, I'm in the uh, well, the eastern part of Ontario. Okay. Or Greater Quebec, as they like to call it. <laughs> LCC, right. baby, LCC. Yeah, yeah, leading a, leading a separatist militia, even as we speak. Uh, okay, well, uh, if, uh, if if there's nobody shooting, I, I will actually be in, Tor- in uh, Toronto in um, in late April. Uh, so uh, giving a... Giving well, a couple- I, I plan to be at Sam's show in, in Boston. You're going to be there, I'm sure. Uh, I don't know about that, but uh, but yeah, I will be in uh, I'll be in Toronto uh, in um, in late April. Give it a couple Where talks. Where are you going to be? Uh, so I'm going to be uh, giving one talk at um, at U of T and one at uh, well, what was called Ryerson. I don't know. I don't know. Like we're supposed to sort of awkwardly. Yeah, yeah, it's still called Ryerson. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll give one talk at, for now. Still Ryerson. Uh, and then, uh, there's going to be something that probably for York students, but not on campus, like at a bar or something, but, uh, well, I have some connections here for you. Um, my, my lady, my boss, who I have uh-huh. to go, cook, who I have to go cook dinner for, uh, got her PhD handed to her by, uh, or actually her master's handed to her by Northrop Fry. Um, and she wrote Negotiating Race and Gender in the Diaries of Eliza Jones, British Wife and a, of an Ojibwe Missionary in Upper Canada, 1823 to 1883. Her mother got her Doctor of Philosophy while Northrop Frye was still a lion, albeit in winter. And she did uh, what Jordan Peterson did later, but better. Uh, she did a, a Doctor of Philosophy in the literary comparison, comparing Virgil's Aeneid, uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy and Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, the myth and meaning of the Bible in literature. And uh, she did that while Northrop Fry was uh, looking over her shoulder. All right. Very nice. All right. Well, um, thank you. Uh, thank you for the call. Uh, it's been fun. Thank you, everybody, for uh, for listening. 
Uh, I am probably uh, going to uh, be doing one of these on at Sunday at noon. I've been trying to do at least one. I've been trying to do the Sunday ones at that time. So for uh, callers and, you know, in Europe, you know, who uh, for whom the usual times that we do this are a little late, we could do it there. And I will finally talk about the uh, the Rogan appearance uh, on uh, on that one. But I just thought we should do the, uh, you know, like the the apocalypse uh, before, uh, you know, before we talked about uh, Joe Rogan. So um, I will see people then uh, Sunday at noon. Meanwhile, thanks everybody for uh, for listening. Left. To-